Check out all our new articles and content on BrewInterview.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Brew Interview. And for some quality memes, follow us on Instagram at Brew Interview Memes. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Break Room, a podcast put on by The Brew Interview, a totally awesome student-run publication at UCLA. Considering just how chaotic and scary the world is right now, we hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy. Just as a reminder, you are never alone. My name is Sophia, and today I'll be your host. Um, in this episode, I am joined by the amazing Dr. Michelle D. Dr. D is an anesthesiologist and first-line responder at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, California. She's also a family friend of mine, and her son, Zeke, is set to attend UCLA next year, which is super exciting. Go Bruins! Um, So, Michelle, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. I know that you're super busy and even on call after this, so this totally means a lot. (laughs) I'm happy to be here. So I feel like I didn't do you like total justice with that introduction. Um, so first off, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your career path? How did you end up at Cedars? So I um, went to school in Boston and I am from Huntington Beach originally. So I kind of really want to come back to California after my med school and undergrad out there. And when I first graduated med school, I actually went into general surgery. And when you're in surgery residency, there's different ones. Sometimes you are in like an interim spot that you will transition into ENT or transition into urology. But I was what's called a categorical general surgery resident, which means you're like set to be in general surgery. And then I, between fourth and fifth year of surgery residency, I went back to Boston and did a pediatric trauma surgery fellowship, which was research and taking pediatric surgery call and obviously working with the trauma surgeons there. But my boyfriend at the time was an orthopedic resident at UC Irvine. And long story short, I just decided to change career paths in general. And after I finished my year of trauma fellowship there, I came back to LA, finished one more year of surgery, so that was five years of general surgery, which is almost basically a complete residency. But then I switched to anesthesia. I love anesthesia. And I ended up at Cedars because during one of my rotations, one of the attendings actually asked me, I guess I impressed him, I'll say that. And then he asked me if, you know, I was interested in staying on and being faculty there. So I'm now faculty. We actually have our own residency program at at um, Cedars-Sinai as well. So we're one of the larger residency programs. And so it's kind of come full circle. And now I'm, I'm faculty there. In terms of anesthesia and COVID, we've really taken a leading role in the management of COVID around the world because number one, anesthesia really were intensivists, meaning we're taking care of like critical patients in the OR and that also transitions to the ICU. So we manage them in the ICU and on top of that, because of anesthesia, we're the ones that are unfortunately putting them sometimes on a ventilator. So meaning that we have to put in a breathing tube, which we call intubating. So we're literally in the face of these COVID patients. 
So. Wow, that's that's amazing. <laughs> and also, like your career path is just so impressive and totally the pre med dream. Like I I am pre med and I'm sitting here like, oh my gosh, like ah, that's my dream. And I totally understand the whole wanting to get back to California thing. I totally feel that. Um, wow, that's amazing. And so I did hear a little bit about the ventilators. Um, you know, my dad actually told me he heard from you about that. Um, so what does that look like? Like what type of contact do you come into with the patients when you put those in? So typically speaking, we are intubating the patients that are already in the ICU. So they've been in the hospital and they're deteriorating. They obviously, it's not the first thing you want to do. You're waiting and seeing if you can support them other ways with oxygen through a face mask or through what we call a a nasal cannula. And there's ways to maximize support on that. But if they're still struggling, it's not good for the rest of their body, for their heart to be working so hard because they're trying to get oxygen to their body. So at some point we have to make a decision that we need to put them on the ventilator to give them some support. And the goal of that really is just to get them through the most critical point of their illness. At the beginning of the COVID kind of crisis, we didn't know a whole lot. We know a lot more now. And so, you know, it can be longer, it can be shorter. And fortunately, I do feel like patients are getting better with the treatment that we're offering. So that's good. That's amazing to hear. Um, I know that, you know, countrywide, there was like actually a shortage on ventilators, right? Did you and your team like ever like, you know, feel the impact of that? And if so, like, how did you guys deal with that? Um, so the hospital prepared itself very well. Number one, I was really proud of California for shutting down so quickly. It was seemed like overnight that we were shut down and we were in the first states to do that. And because we were able to mitigate the rise in coronavirus cases, we were able to not run out of resources. I have friends in New York that definitely had to make the decision in the emergency room which patient was going to get a ventilator and which patient, unfortunately, probably was not going to be able to receive one. So we were very, very fortunate in LA to be able to manage that better. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember, you know, hearing about it on the news and just thinking how shocking that was to have to make that like decision. Um, I know that like, luckily you didn't have to be in that situation, but as like your perspective from like a doctor's standpoint, how do you think someone would even make that call? So before we really started seeing like a huge surge, we actually sat down and made a protocol kind of like tiers of who would be selected to get a ventilator and who would not qualify if we had to make that decision. So we wanted to make it set out because it becomes very emotional at times and you think, oh, well, you know, this one, this patient should get it. So in many ways, having it formulated already and say, well, they have these many points and so, and this patient has this, this many points. So we have to, you know, you can use that protocol and criteria to help you decide instead of bringing your emotions into it. Because as a physician, that's, you know, you're there to take care of patients and making that decision would be heart-wrenching, honestly. 
Yeah, I can't, I mean, that's definitely a good idea to have like a very objective like set of things because I, I can't even imagine trying to like make that decision on the fly. Have you had any, you know, notable interactions with COVID patients that stick out in your head at all? Well, I will tell you the ones that stick out in my mind, unfortunately, are the patients that are younger that you expect to do well. And you go into the room and you talk to them and say, knowing also that you may be the last person they talk to before they're intubated. They can't see their family. And at the beginning, we really weren't sure who was going to come out of it. So you literally were maybe the last face that they're going to see. So that is really heavy. And so you remember each patient, I would say, but especially the younger ones that you think are going to do okay. You know, I, I like to follow them through their course and some can get very, very sick and some do better, but um, it's been pretty tough seeing patients that you think are going to do well and are going to fight it and be just on the ventilator for a couple of days who turn the corner the wrong way and things go bad. So um, those are the cases definitely you think about. Yeah. Yeah, that's like definitely, it's especially tragic because at the time, like no one really knew anything about COVID. And so like, I feel like it's so hard to predict that sometimes, like how well someone's going to do. Just in general, um, how do you think that like the medical community has changed like since the onset of the crisis to now, like just experiencing this like large pandemic, little to no information. Like, how do you think that the healthcare system has changed in terms of learning how to support something like that? I actually have been really happy in that, you know, this really all started end of December, but started to maybe January is when Wuhan started to really explode. And they were the first people to collect any data or have any experience with it. And this is now five months later, and we're doing much better. But the global community truly has pooled all their resources in terms of like this saying, like, this is my experience here. This is my experience here. We tried this drug and this seems to work and that doesn't seem to work. And there is a a document there like a, like kind of like a Google Drive where people are uploading documents and articles and everyone can access it and so you're reading articles from Italy you're reading articles from China and you're really exchanging literally with these people from across the world and finding out what their experience was so it was really amazing to see everyone kind of come together over this and also there was an urgency to it too because people were really dying so it was it was amazing to see that everyone could come together that way. Politics aside. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think that is amazing. Um, It makes me believe in humanity and our ability to, you know, overcome our differences in a time of need. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that, you know, physicians all over the world have the same goal, and that is really to take care of patients and, and see how we can manage things better. You know, and so I do think everyone shares that common goal, you know, that every life is precious. Right, right. No, I think that's absolutely amazing. And that makes me happy to hear. So I guess like, you know, thinking globally, 
there have definitely been some countries that have handled the COVID crisis like better than others, right? So I know like Taiwan or like Denmark, even China to an extent, they actually did very well in like containing COVID. And I, I agree with you in that. I think California did an excellent job, especially me being not from California and seeing that from the outside. But in general, do you think there's anything about either um, the United States from like a cultural standpoint or like from, you know, a healthcare standpoint that makes it more difficult to contain like a crisis like this? Yeah, I think that's a an excellent question because in places like China, Taiwan or Korea, the public is much more accustomed to following the rules maybe. And so they were willing to have contact tracing um, and they were willing to follow the rules of wearing a mask in public. I mean, you still go out now and there's some people will wear them. I think most people will wear them um, as we're reopening, but there's some that don't. And that's uh, can be frustrating to a healthcare provider. And I've seen the numbers unfortunately go up again this week significantly as we start to reopen. But I think that the compliance of populations in other countries is a lot higher than it is here. I love the U.S. and I love the freedoms that we have, but I also know that that can be a weakness when it comes to public health as well. Because, for example, people can elect not to have the measles vaccine. And now we have a resurgence in measles. And these, these are going to be public healthcare crises that like we're facing now. So I think that that can be an issue in the U.S. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I love, like I said, our freedoms and our, our ability to make choices. But when it comes to public health, it can be challenging if you want to get everyone on the same page. So, Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it is a little bit, I guess, controversial in a sense, right? Because I know like I was talking about, or I was talking with one of my friends whose family is from China and like, I think because their government has so much more power over them, it's easier to enforce that. Um, Also, I think like Asia in general, they had to deal with like SARS and they had some sort of like infrastructure from that too, which I think is interesting. So do you think that also like had a role in like how they were able to handle COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I was in Hong Kong at the end of January, right when things were happening in um Wuhan, that we were hearing of this this virus that was very serious. And people were wearing masks. And I think that because they've had experience with SARS in the past, people wear masks and they're not, they're very comfortable wearing masks in public. And in fact, in Asia, people, if they're feeling sick, they wear a mask because they don't want to spread it to others. It's just kind of a courtesy thing, even without the pandemic. To us in the States, it's very foreign. And if you see someone in a mask before this crisis, you would think like, oh, does that person have cancer? Like, why are they wearing a mask? But I mean, it was like a cultural thing that you're thinking like, well, like what's going on here? But honestly, I think that because some cultures are used to wearing masks and in Japan, they bow when they greet each other. They don't do handshakes. I love hugging people and things like that and that's, that's just the, how it is in, in the states like it's like a different kind of culture, you know? so it is it is a little bit different I think it is a little challenging for for people in the United States to get used to 
I hope that they're able to get used to it because I do think that, you know, if you want to reopen the economy, you want people not to get sick. This is these are the choices you have to make. Yeah. And I I do think that like after this whole crisis, like I think American culture has changed with regards to that, hopefully. But I guess you could also say that about the entire world. And so I guess like in context of like this huge change that's happening, like culturally, what do you think like we can learn, I guess, I guess as Americans, right? Like what do you think we can take away from this pandemic to prepare for maybe like future outbreaks? Well, I think that number one, people are just much more conscientious about hygiene. So just simply washing your hands, right? And I think kids and adults are more conscientious about like coughing into your elbow, right? Not, not. I mean, assuming that we're going to one day not have to wear masks, you know, just being aware of not just letting your respiratory droplets fly all over the place. I do think that people are going to be a little bit more aware of that. And, and then on the environmental side of things, I think that the Zoom conferencing is great. I don't think that people need to fly up to San Francisco for like a half hour meeting and fly back. I think that maybe people are getting used to doing Zoom and realizing you can see the facial interaction and get a feeling of who that person is. And so I think from the environmental standpoint, we've made a lot of progress as well. Yeah, I, I actually think that's a really interesting point because um, I remember at the very beginning of quarantine, like right when we were starting to do quarantine, um, I read something and I forgot who said it and I wish I remembered, but the gist was like, we're going to come out of this and, you know, think about why we even had certain in-person interactions in the first place when things can be done online. So I totally agree with you on that. Um, and I think it kind of reflects like a changing world too. Like it's accelerated like our reliance on technology. Absolutely, absolutely. And even kids doing online classes. Who would have? I, I still don't think it's optimal, but it's it's, it's okay, it's acceptable. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. I was actually going to ask you about that because one of the things that makes Dr. Michelle D so great is that she's not just this amazing like badass physician right she's also a mother and that is just incredibly impressive in its own but yeah no I was going to ask you what how do you feel about you know online education because these you know all these universities are trying to you know adjust and you know respect everyone's safety and health um, by like trying to introduce these online options you know like every single university sent students home for spring and even some schools like the California states are like already dropping the whole like online fall semester bomb. So how do you feel about that? Okay, so I think for the university students, it is manageable if you are able to be self-motivated. I think some people, you know, in college, some people don't even go to class and they just get the notes or whatever. I mean, let's be real. Very true. <laughs> but um, so they, they have their other tools in terms of their studying. It, but for elementary kids and even high school kids and middle school kids, I think that it doesn't serve the child as well as being in class, unfortunately. And I think that because of how rapidly this was pushed upon schools and teachers, they had no time to adapt or develop an online curriculum. So it was a little bit of a mess the first few weeks, to be completely <laughs> honest. I think for the fall, people are going to be much more 
prepared. I'm actually on one of the committees, like the professional medical professional committee for Palos Verdes Peninsula Unified School District to kind of recommend it with the superintendent to decide about what the fall is going to look like for students, because I really feel like it's important for them to have that social interaction as well. It's been very challenging for kids at home to not have anyone to play with or run around. Thankfully, I do have four kids, so they can play with each other. (laughs) But some people that only have one, it's really sad and it's really hard for them. And like I said, it doesn't replace that personal interaction of being in class. So I think that in the fall, there may be some kind of hybrid model. I know that some families are still going to want to be home because they're worried. I know that some teachers won't want to come back in the classroom because they're worried. So we're going to have to like reassess the whole thing and be able to be prepared for both options. Right. Um, I totally get what you're saying about the little kids. It's harder because I, you know, I myself have like a five-year-old brother and I just feel so bad because he has so much energy and it just takes so much to like get him to focus. And you really do have to, you know, be with them all day. So it definitely will put a strain on parents who work or can't really like, you know, share the time very well. And yeah, I definitely agree also, though, that like kids spread germs and that it's definitely a hazard for both other children and teachers um, in like a school environment. With that being said, do you think that like these online transitions are necessary, though, like from like a health standpoint, like they're a good idea? Yeah, I definitely think they're a good idea. And I think that we are fortunate that we live in a world where we have these options now. Most families, at least in our district, do have some kind of Wi-Fi or some access to be able to get online. I think that, unfortunately, there are some communities that don't have enough access to online resources, so that can be a difficulty in certain populations. Um, We were very fortunate in that, like, my youngest, who's in elementary, didn't have his own computer, but our school had enough resources that he they just gave him one to bring home. So every kid that didn't have a computer, you could just come check out a laptop. And then we just returned it because he just graduated last week. But <laughs> Yay. Yay, no. But that said, like not everyone has those resources. So that's the one pitfall. And unfortunately, that is where the people that are in higher socioeconomic situations, that gap is going to grow with the ones that don't have as many resources. So that's like a something that we're really going to have to address in terms of bringing up the people that don't have as much access to where they can get those resources as well. Yeah, it's definitely like a nationwide struggle because even with things like the SAT, with like AP tests this year, they had they didn't really have a lot of time to prepare for it. But because all those tests were moved online, um, even like fewer people, I think realistically were able to take them just because like the internet is like a, is like a privilege in itself. And so there definitely needs to be some thought out solutions for that problem. I agree. And so in general, like this online format for education, how long do you think that this will probably go on? Do you have like an estimate? (laughs) Wow, that's a pretty heavy question. I think that in terms of figuring out what the fall will look like, that is with the assumption that we're still going to have COVID and that we're still going to be dealing with social distancing. I think we're going to, through the end of 2020, those guidelines and practices are still going to be in place. 
And until we have a way to either do testing all the time of every single person, that, which is not going to happen, by the way, but unless we were able to test every someone all the time or develop a vaccine, which they're rapidly making progress on that, but to see if that's really going to be effective is going to take some time as well. It's one thing to give a vaccine, but to see what the results are is going to take some time. So that is probably not going to happen till early 2021 would be my guess that the public would even have access to it. So I do think that this fall and this school year is going to be 2021 school year is going to be affected, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I do think that the rules will probably start to relax and people will just say it's okay. Like, you know, the flu kills a lot of people each year. It's not quite spread as virulently as COVID has been and it's and COVID has killed people much quicker but we live with the flu these days so it's just something that people get flu shots and vaccines again in the U.S. some people are going to say I really don't want a vaccine so that's going to be another hurdle that we're going to have to deal with and just except that a certain segment of the population is not going to necessarily have immunity and maybe spreaders. So we're going to have to factor all of those things in when it comes to remodeling society and remodeling public schools or any kind of school or any kind of large gathering. So unfortunately, I think it's going to be going on for a little while. It's sad, but not unexpected. I think, you know, at least all us college students have kind of prepared for the worst, like after a while. Um, but yeah, thank you for giving that estimate. Definitely a lot of planning needs to go into it, especially because, you know, COVID is like a virus. So isn't it true that the virus can also mutate and then that makes it more difficult to develop a vaccine? Right. Yeah. So there, there, there could be a different strain. Right now we're on COVID-19. So maybe there'll be a COVID-20 next year. <laughs> I mean, honestly, we really don't know. You know, right when we figure out COVID-19 and figure out how to stop it, there'll be a new one that does it does it in a different way. So um, that's where science is so remarkable. It's evolving all the time. And one coronavirus, like the first SARS coronavirus, affected mostly just the lungs. This disease is affecting not just the lungs, but everywhere else as well. So it's, I mean, systemically in your body. So there's lots to figure out. But I do think in terms of handling a pandemic, the world is better prepared. Good. <laughs> That's good to hear after all of this. Um, yeah. So, you know, as like, you know, we're kind of, I guess like the first wave of COVID is like slowing down a little bit, or at least in my perspective, I think it is. Um, would you say that we're going to expect like a second wave? Or would you say that we're still in like a first wave? I think we're on to the second wave now because if the beginning of June, I know at Cedars, which is the biggest hospital in the Western United States, we our numbers had dropped to our lowest point, it seemed like, and they've climbed again. So in the last nine, 10 days, it's gone up 30% from what I've seen in terms of our census. So that's, if that's reflective of what's going on in other places, then that's a little bit worrisome. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, to address like some recent events, right? So like all, you know, political and social initiatives like aside, there have been like a, a lot of protests recently. And those are like large gatherings of people. So 
Do you think that that might have something to do with the spike in cases? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I expect to see some of those people this coming week. (laughs) Unfortunately, I mean, I don't want to, you know, it's not like I'm wishing ill on anyone, but unfortunately it's, it's a real problem and it's, it will affect people. And if you're not going to take precautions, then you are at risk for getting sick. So that's the unfortunate part of it. You know, that's the reality. Yeah. It's definitely a really poor timing of like events right like it's just not like large group like gatherings of people and like a global pandemic just do not go well together unfortunately I I was feeling like at the end of May I was feeling so good our numbers were dropping and the world was coming together like we were celebrating the class of 2020 like all my students are graduating and then the protests happen and it is not a political comment at all, but I just think that the protests are one thing. People protests are fine. And I think the peaceful protesters were, most of them were, or some of them wearing masks, but I was so disheartened with all the looting and all the criminal behavior. That was just the opposite feeling. It was just, I felt like it was the worst of humanity, you know, like people taking advantage of a bad situation for their for the benefit of themselves. And that was just so disheartening to see. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's sad because a lot of the people that are being especially violent aren't really part of, you know, the Black Lives Matter cause. Like they're kind of, you're right, they're their own thing. They're just kind of seeing it as an opportunity to like steal and do crime. And it's really sad for everyone. Yeah. Totally agree with you there. Absolutely. So like moving away from like protests and stuff, I think in general, um, especially depending on where you are in the country. Um, I think the South is pretty like notable for this. A lot of people have kind of given up on quarantine or are starting to go out again. Um, some restaurants are like opening, indoor seating, gyms are starting to open up again. Do you think that that's like an okay thing? Do you think that we should wait a little bit longer? What's your opinion on that? Uh, that That's a tough one. I mean, I think that from the public health standpoint, if you could be isolated for the rest of your life, of course, you won't get sick. However, yeah. you know, the economy still has to happen. People do have lives that they want to get back to. And I think that's an, that mental health component of being able to socialize and see people and go out and walk outside of your house for a little bit is important. I think that it will people will start to get sick and more COVID cases are going to happen because of the reopening. Definitely. But I think that people are also ready to risk that. It seems like they don't care, honestly. And they're just saying, you know what, if I get sick, I get sick. And until it really happens to you or a close family member, then you won't realize the gravity of the disease. Yeah. I think especially, um, like people, people my age, right? People who are less susceptible overall don't really, or like feel a little bit detached from it because they, like most people have not had like someone immediate or themselves like struggle with it. But you're right. It is a, still a very real concern. And even if you don't show symptoms, um, you could always pass it on to someone else and really endanger their lives. Uh, do you have any coworkers that did actually contract COVID from the hospital? Yes. Yeah, we did. And um, one of my partners was hospitalized for a little bit. One 
was also very sick, but he, his wife is an ICU nurse, so he tried to stay home and was just calling his cardiologist every day. One person tested positive for the antibodies, which means that he had it at one point, but he didn't realize. Some of our residents have gotten COVID and they had medium, like moderate symptoms. So I've been fortunate in that I haven't known anyone that got seriously ill, but I do have friends, a surgeon whose cousin passed away. Yeah, and they were young. They had young kids. So I, I do know the opposite side of the story where people's family members have passed. Wow, that's that's really, really sad. Yeah. But that's part of the risk that we face when we choose to go into this, you know? So I think that anyone that was on the airway team was knew that they were putting themselves at risk, but they were willing to do that. Yeah, that's just so amazing and inspiring. So I guess from everyone listening and myself included, thank you so much for going to work and doing your job because that's a really very difficult situation to be in. Um, were you personally like ever scared of contracting it or giving it to your family? Or like, if so, did you take any like measures to prevent that? Like, did you quarantine yourself? Yeah, at, at the beginning, I really was trying to self-isolate. I had friends that were staying in an RV outside their house, for example, so they would be separate from their family, but somewhat close by. But a lot of people are just, you know, literally stripping naked in the garage and throwing their scrubs in the washer and going straight to the shower. I mean, but we also have um, showers and everything at Cedars so that we just, you can do everything there and go home and feel confident. I was feeling a little more nervous about it at the beginning, but I'm actually, you know, seeing my kids now and feel better. And I've fortunately, no one on our airway team, except one, the person that had an antibody test that was positive has been negative. So I feel confident in our PPE. So. Okay. That's awesome. Um, and so I've actually seen some really cute pictures of you in your PPE. (laughs) Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, what was, you know, getting into that, like, like, what did you have to wear? I'll send you a picture, but essentially I wear my N95. I wear a surgical mask on top of that. Then I wear what's called a powered Uh, purifying air respirator. So it's called the PAPR. And it's something that seals your whole head. It's like um, a hood that you look like you're in a hazmat suit, essentially. And then we put another layer on top of that and another gown on top of that and double gloves and long boots. So it's like the movie E.T. when they're going in and they are wearing like all this suit. Um, It's kind of like that. And um, we're very, very cautious. And I literally feel comfortable because I'm wearing four layers between the patient. Um, So you feel pretty secure. I feel pretty secure. And I haven't had to run out of any equipment. That's good. But even then, like people who are wearing that still have contracted COVID, right? So like, even with all that protection, yeah, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, who knows, though? So, yeah, that's that's crazy. I think we're pretty much out of questions, which is perfect, actually. So, thank you so so much for spending this time talking to me about COVID and really like giving awesome answers to these questions. Um, I really really appreciate it. Uh, so, thank you so much.